0: Episode 53 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. There are hundreds of things that we could cover in this podcast, many of which involve terrible and depressing acts by our fellow man. But today I think we need some good news, some things to look forward to. As great as it is to be a Christian, surprisingly few of us have any realistic idea of exactly why it is it's great to be a Christian, other than we get to live a long time. We have no idea what our long-term job is, which means we have no idea what we're being prepared to do. That leads to misunderstandings as to what various scriptures in the Bible really mean. So I thought it would be a good and useful thing to take a trip through scripture to see just exactly what God has in mind for us. In future episodes, we'll return to the topics that occupy much of our attention. But for today, let's see what the Bible says is our coming reward. What's the big picture? That begins at Genesis chapter 1 in verse 27. For those of you who have been following along in the Daniel Bible study, this episode may repeat some of that material. It's kind of inevitable when talking about these things. So let's begin at Genesis 1 verse 27. It reads, God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So here we are at the beginning of God's story, and he has just created a man and a woman. They were created with two distinct genders, just as the animals had been created with two distinct genders. It's because we're all biological beings, and the pattern God created is that each species has two genders with two different sets of capabilities that are unique to each gender, and two different but complementary functions that combine to form a new biological being of the same type. Gender is based on the facts of biology, not the whimsy of philosophical preference or the confusion of academic minutiae. It's a pretty simple idea, gender, which makes it kind of amazing that so many people seem to be confused about it. The English text of verse 22 adds to this basic biological information the phrase made in his own image. And just to emphasize that phrase, God repeated it. Now, most of us have been taught that the phrase made in his own image means that we have certain righteous attributes of God that are part of us, that those attributes are infused, as it were, within our spiritual essence. And that's why we're special among the animals of the earth. It is the idea that there is some spark of God that uniquely shines within man, and we're just waiting for God to blow on it so it can burst into flame. The English phrase used in our Bibles comes from a single Hebrew word, and Aramaic word, which is the word Tselem. If you are interested in the technical reference, Tselem is listed as Strong's H6754 in Hebrew and H6755 in Aramaic, which is a similar language. You might be surprised to learn that Salem does not mean in the likeness of God, despite what the English translation says it says. It actually means in the likeness of a graven image of God, a graven image being an empty image, a vain image, a heathen image, but nevertheless an image possessing a vague resemblance to God. In other words, it presents mankind as a perverted image of God. God in this passage is not saying that he made a great representation of himself in mankind. He is saying that he made something flawed and disturbingly different from himself, yet still vaguely representative. It's true that we're like God in several important ways. For instance, we can think and reason. We can imagine and create things from our imagination. We can experience a whole range of emotions and spiritual conditions, from compassion and love to indifference and annoyance, even hatred and vengeance, to name just a few. But the Bible says the root of the human being is our heart, not the biological one, but the spiritual one. The biblical heart is that part of us that embodies our will, our desires, and our emotions. The heart is the motivational engine of our daily lives. It's that part of us which in Jeremiah 17 9, God said is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The very thing that motivates and informs our every desire is the most deceitful thing on earth, according to God, and it's deceitful in a very sinister way. Does that sound like we're made in the image of God? In fact, God added the words, who can know it, to emphasize that we are completely incapable of discerning the true depth of our own wickedness because we are burdened with relentless self-deception about our true condition. Look at how well you deceive yourselves, God is saying, thinking that you are made in the likeness of God when in fact you can't hold a candle to the goodness or majesty of the one true God. That Hebrew word Salem was put in the Bible at the very first mention of man, not to emphasize how great we are, but to emphasize how flawed we are, because that flawedness is part of the story. Yet despite how corrupt and flawed we are, God still gave us a job to do. Verse 28 of Genesis. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God made mankind as a corrupted version of Himself, and then issued a command to go out into the world, have some sex, and make a bunch of little ewes to fill up the whole earth. That may not be the normal explanation given for this passage, but it does fit in with the whole purpose of the Bible. The Bible is a book written by God through selected men to help mankind understand who God is and who we are and it starts out clarifying that we are not him, but we should go out and populate the whole earth anyway. So for what purpose did God command us to populate the earth? Well, according to the text, the purpose was to subdue it. That word translated subdue is the Hebrew word kibosh, and it means what the English word says. It means to subdue something, to make it subject to our control, even subdue it by force if necessary in order to keep it under our control, to bring it into bondage to us, to establish our ownership and control over it, and to make it subservient to our will. And what are we supposed to bring into bondage? The earth and everything in it. (laughs) The globalists of today have taken this idea to heart. Well, that was a command issued by God to mankind, and he has the authority to issue such a command because he is a sovereign of the whole universe, a sovereign being a person who has the right and authority to control something. Sovereigns also have the authority to delegate responsibilities downward to their subjects, and that's what God did when he made human beings his designated agents down on the earth. And to make sure that we understood what that responsibility entailed, he went on to list some of the things that we were to subdue. We were to subdue the fish, the birds, and all living things. This process of subduing and controlling living things and the resources they use is called governance. The Bible, therefore, is a book in large part about governance, And that theme begins in the very first chapter of the book. According to American Heritage Dictionary, to govern means to make and administer public policy and affairs. Well, that's just a fancy way of saying that some people establish rules, boundaries, and limitations on the behavior of other people, or to control the behavior of other people. To do this, some people have to exercise a degree of sovereignty over other people and things. So right at the beginning of the Bible, God gave mankind the responsibility to govern and control the earth, including our fellow men and women. That required mankind to construct a system by which the behavior of most people can be controlled by others. Government was intended by God to be an essential regulator or enforcer of appropriate human behavior by establishing moral and ethical boundaries to human behavior. Human beings were given the responsibility by God to enforce that, yet human beings are not God. So how did God expect us to govern rightly when we were created as a corrupt and perverse version of God? Well, he didn't. So we were provided with mentors and supervisors to help us learn how to govern appropriately. Those mentors and supervisors are called angels. God involved them with human governance from the very beginning but it didn't take them very long to stop viewing their role as humble mentors of humanity and start viewing their role as glorious rulers over humanity. This is the age of the angels, a time period that predates the events in the Bible that occur after chapter 1. I know that will sound controversial to many of you, but it does explain otherwise unexplainable facts of history and nature, as well as other unexplainable facts within the Bible itself. If you're interested in the details of the pre-Adamic period, let me know by email and I will think about filling in that information in future episodes. Or you can ask me for a copy of a book that I've not yet published that explains it in great detail. The angels soon established their rulership over the entire earth, which gave birth to the ubiquitous age of the myths about gods with physical bodies who ruled over men. All over the world, all at the same time, the same kind of stories developed about gods of ancient times. The same events are recorded from one hemisphere to the other and from one continent to another. In the biblical Middle East, it became accepted that the gods vied for power and status through their human subjects, teaching them warfare and battling army against army as a contest of power of the gods who claimed each side, gods with a little g. The angels, rapidly tired of virtue and ethics, and soon switched to intrigue, deception, and corruption to increase their holdings and their status among other angels. These were the watcher angels on the earth who periodically reported their activities back to an overseeing council of angels in the spiritual realm who are referenced in Psalm 89, verse 5, where it says, The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. This period of angelic oversight of human government is recorded in Psalm 82, when God looked back and reflected on the problems of this era, when the Watcher Angels were not performing their delegated responsibilities correctly and were taking it upon themselves to rule the earth as they saw fit. I'm going to read Psalm 82 in its entirety because it directly references this time period and the problems God had with the Watcher Angels, which plays into the end-time events and our ultimate role in Jesus' kingdom. The psalm is subtitled, A Psalm of Asaph, Asaph being a prophet who wrote down the psalm as God gave him a vision. Psalm 82, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah, defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand they walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. So when the psalm opens, Asaph is observing a scene in heaven, which is the location of the congregation of the mighty, also known as the divine assembly. This is a group of angels whom God calls gods, signifying their divine status as direct delegates of God's authority, and he is meeting with them. But there's something unusual going on. There's a judgment taking place. So either God is participating in a judgment session headed by the angels, with the angels judging something, or God is judging the angels themselves. Verse 2, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So God is addressing some group of angels and accusing them of violating his commandments, which we know they're violating them, from Deuteronomy 1.17 and Proverbs 18.5, which say, you shall not show partiality in judgment, that's Deuteronomy, and it's not good to show partiality to the wicked, Proverbs 18.5. So whomever is being judged and addressed by God, they are directly violating his commandments. Since this is taking place in an assembly in heaven, we can reasonably assume that whoever is guilty of this sin must be an angel, since they are the occupants of heaven. Verses 3 and 4. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. God is commanding these angels whom he is judging to do right. But the question is, where are they to do right? In heaven? No. There are no poor, fatherless, afflicted, or needy in heaven they are to do right down on the earth. And who's on the earth who needs them to do right? It's people. So whomever God is judging, they are being convicted of spiritual criminality down on the earth and are being admonished to change their ways and do right to the people down on the earth. So that means their job or some component of their job must be to administer justice among people down on the earth, which occurred during the pre-Adamic time period known as the time of the angels. Verse five, they do not know nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. Well, this verse just blows me away because God's not talking about the angels who are in the council or even the ones he's judging, if they are different from the council, because they know and they understand. The angels are not confused about anything that God requires of them. The ones who don't know or understand these heavenly ideas are the people down on the earth, the ones who are supposed to be benefiting from the administration of the angels. They, the humans, walk about in darkness, meaning they run their lives in a helpless state of ignorance as to what is really important spiritually. But it's the next line that's really shocking. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. The people of the earth walk about in darkness because the foundations of the earth are unstable. Well, what's this foundations that God is talking about? Does it mean earthquakes or the rocks of the earth? In Hebrew, the word is shatha. It means foundation or support. But figuratively, it means political or moral support or purpose. The people on the earth are blind because their political and moral support system is unstable. That word unstable is the Hebrew word mot. The root of the word mot means to be fallen into decay. So the instability is the decay of the human moral and political support system. So what is that support system, and what caused the decay? Verse 6, I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. So we're back to the angels, the ones being judged by God. The implication is that they, the angels, are the foundations of the world, which means that they are the political and moral support system for the human beings, and their moral and political support decayed and adversely affected the human moral and political system. Therefore, God was forced to judge the angels. Verse 7. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Now, angels don't normally die like men, so this judgment by God is unusual. However, angels with human-like corporeal bodies can be made to die like men. The most straightforward explanation of this verse is that God is judging the angels who were given human form to interact with the humans on the earth, but who failed to do their job down on the earth. And which angels are these? They are the Watcher Angels, who were sent down to the earth to supervise the affairs of men and teach them God's ways, both moral and political, as mankind developed civilization. But those angels rebelled, which is the reference in Genesis 6 to the sons of God, and the result of their rebellion was the creation of hybrid creatures known as Nephilim. Those angels and Nephilim formed the basis for all the mythological creatures and gods that came out of that era. The myths are the ancient memories of these creatures. God did ordain those angels to die like men, and they died, many in battle, but some by other means. The flood was God's final way of destroying their progeny from the earth, the Nephilim, most of them anyway. While those angels ruled the earth, they corrupted God's creation at a very fundamental level by interbreeding with human women, Genesis 4, and by unleashing the Nephilim to destroy human beings and institutions. Nephilim, the word, can be translated as giants, or it can be translated as violent ones. When the corruption and destruction got bad enough, God intervened, first by imprisoning many of the angels in an abyss, which is a kind of spiritual prison, and then by killing off their progeny, the Nephilim, in a flood, along with most of the people as well. Once all that unpleasantness was over with, people resumed their delegated role as governors and rulers of the earth. We didn't do much better at governing than the angels, but at least we lacked the intelligence and resourcefulness to corrupt all life on the earth the way the angels did, at least until recently. In today's world, we're rapidly redeveloping and exceeding the early angelic efforts to corrupt and pervert all of God's created life. Ostensibly, if you want to believe Yuval Noah Harari and Klaus Schwab, We are artificially accelerating the process of evolution through genetic manipulation and transhuman physical transformations so that we can save the earth from organic life and institute the final solution, which is the establishment of inorganic life. That would be machine life. So given that we have governments around the world advancing that agenda, what is God to do? Well, the plan all along was to let Satan and his demonic hordes, angelic and human, run roughshod over the earth, giving them just enough time and technological resources to hang themselves before God's man rides in on a white horse to save the day, the earth, and what's left of humanity. That man, of course, is Jesus Christ. And he is coming to accomplish what no man or angel has ever before accomplished or ever will accomplish again. That thing is described in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The scripture reads, Let's break this down. Firstly, Jesus is the Son of God because he is part of God. Jesus, the Messiah, meaning God's anointed one, was given by God as a gift to mankind for the express purpose of ushering some people into eternal communion with God, which are those of us who want to be eternally in communion with him. I'm not going into the theology of how all that works, because there are lots of pastors who do that for a living. Instead, I want Christians to see what our role will be in this new and emerging government of Jesus's because that's the good news that we have to look forward to as we stare down the barrel of the new dark ages. Jesus is not coming back to hang around in a commune smoking pot and singing kumbaya. He is coming back to do what the angels and human beings could not or would not do on their own, which is establish a government that's based on righteous judgment, justice and peace. In God's view, the world's current governments, including that of America, and especially that of America, score a big fat zero on all three of these bases, and he isn't going to put up with a zero from his students forever. He's sending Jesus to do some things that have never been done before, and the only people rooting for his return are the Christians. A good place to begin looking at those things is at Psalm 110, the announcement of Messiah's reign. This Psalm of David begins with one of the most famous verses in the Bible. The Lord said to my Lord, "Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool." So the psalm begins in the throne room of heaven, where God invites His Son Jesus to take a seat of power next to Him, while Satan prepares to establish the Antichrist as His earthly representative. While Jesus waits, the dead in Christ are being assembled up in heaven. The Apostle John was shown a vision of this assembly in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where it says. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. While this is a vision of Christians who are killed during the Great Tribulation by the Antichrist, the Apostle Paul clarified in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 that whenever a Christian in any time period dies, that Christian immediately goes to be with Jesus in heaven. He said, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, Jesus is assembling a massive group of human spirits in heaven, waiting for a special day known as the first resurrection. Meanwhile, down on the earth, a world body, probably the United Nations, is going to divide the world into ten regions that will exercise political power for the sole purpose of transferring that power over to Satan's selected representative in the final days, who is the Antichrist. This is referenced in Revelation 17, 12-13, when the Apostle John sees a scarlet beast with ten horns, the beast representing the Antichrist. The color scarlet, or red, symbolizes the spilling of blood, meaning the Antichrist will be a killer who will happily murder his way into office and beyond. Horns in the Bible always symbolize power and authority, usually political power, and the beast has horns. These verses read, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with a beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. Now, whether the length of time they hold political power will actually be one hour or the hour is just symbolic of a period that's sufficient to transfer that power to the Antichrist is interesting but not critically important. Either way, these people transfer in a ceremony some kind of power actual, or symbolic to the Antichrist for the purpose of establishing a worldwide political empire. Verse 13 provides some insight into their motivation. It says, these are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. Verse 13 provides some insight into their motivation. It says, these are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. So these ten men will be unified in their desire to transfer their power to the Antichrist otherwise known as the beast. Whether that unity results from an agreement or a technology that alters their thoughts to create a literal single hive mind is an unanswered question. What is clear is that these ten rulers will be subservient to the Antichrist and will fight on his behalf. Verse 14 says, these will, meaning the the ten, will make war with the Lamb. So one of the first things that Jesus is going to have to do when he returns to the earth is engage in warfare against the Antichrist forces. The first time Jesus came to the earth, he sought peace and he went around healing people and he was crucified for it. But the second time, he's coming to establish his promised kingdom and the political forces in power at the time are not going to accept that. At the direction of Satan, they're going to do everything in their power to kill Jesus a second time, but it's not going to work out very well. Revelation 17, 14 continues, The Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Since no government is ever willing to go away quietly, it will have to be forced to go. But this time around, Jesus will take care of that along with a group of beings who accompany him, whom verse 14 calls the chosen and faithful. So who are these chosen and faithful who are coming with Jesus? To get that answer, we have to jump forward to Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. It says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So seeing heaven opened is a way of saying that God gave the author, John, a special look into the workings of heaven in future revelation. In this vision, John sees Jesus sitting on top of a horse, which in the biblical era were rare and extremely expensive. Donkeys were the Volkswagens of the day, but horses were the tanks. They symbolized political and military power because those were the only people who could afford to buy and use them. A white horse symbolized goodness in the political and military application of power. So Jesus is sitting on the horse, and we are informed that he is faithful to God, who is the embodiment of truth and righteousness. Therefore, Jesus is the embodiment of truth and righteousness. It is through those attributes that he judges the intentions, actions, and motivations of the people on the earth. The angels corrupted human morals and justice, but Jesus will come back to establish morals and justice among men. One reality of establishing these things is that injustice and corruption require appropriate punishment. That's the job of government and its leaders, and Jesus is coming to establish such a government. In the words of Isaiah, the government will be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. To order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. But before Jesus can establish his government on the earth, he first has to dismantle the existing governments of the earth. Since they aren't going to dismantle themselves peacefully, he is going to have to dismantle them by force. To emphasize that the governments of the world are not going to go away easily, Revelation 19.13 says, He, Jesus, was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. When God or his Son have to do something as somber and grim as waging war, they don't delegate that responsibility to others and walk away. They put themselves right in the middle of it. In this ultimate battle to establish the first just government on earth, Jesus will be accompanied by something. Revelation 19.13 continues when it says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Jesus will be followed by the armies in heaven. A war leader in John's day led his troops by riding on a horse in front of them. The troops followed the leader, so this is a normal battle array in John's day. Jesus led his armies on a white horse, and the people who followed Jesus were mounted on white horses. This symbolizes an elite, righteous, heavily armed military unit, kind of like a tank division. The people of the army were not only riding on white horses, but they were also dressed in white linen, which further reinforces their special status before God and the fact that something has happened to them. Linen in John's day was very expensive and was used to clothe the priests of God who had an official relationship with God. The symbology is that these people who are following Jesus have an established official relationship with God. That relationship will become clear a bit later on, but in the meantime, these people form one of the armies of God who start their journey in heaven and come down to the earth with Jesus. They are Christ's soldiers who invade the earth. All kings have people who fight for them. Jesus said as much when Pontius Pilate asked him if he was a king in John chapter 18. Pontius Pilate said, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So kings have servants or subjects who fight for them. King David had subjects who fought for him. Every king has subjects who fight for them. Jesus is going to return to the earth with armies who will fight for him. But who will make up these armies? Obviously, one army is made up of the people we saw in the vision of heaven, which is reinforced by the description of white robes and horses. These are objects that are associated with human beings. But another army will be that of the holy angels who did not rebel against God. That's probably the meaning of the plural term armies. So one of the first jobs of Christians in the millennial kingdom will be that of a soldier in Christ's army. But I don't want to be a soldier, you exclaim. Well, I think when you finish your training in heaven, you'll change your mind about that. But even if you don't, there are many jobs in the army, and only some of which involve actual combat. You're going to be given many reasons in heaven to be a soldier, and you're going to be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, into something that you are presently not able to perceive. I know that many people think that Jesus is going to do all the dirty work when he comes back to establish his kingdom, and they think that because the next verse says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword that with it he should strike the nations. Many pastors exegete this verse to mean that Jesus will speak a word and his enemies will fall down dead. While that's a dramatic and I suppose plausible interpretation, it more likely means that Jesus will command his troops and they will go out and strike down the nations. This is one of the purposes of the rest of the Bible, to record historic events that illustrate the end-time realities of the world. We Christians all take for granted that we are the hands and feet of Jesus in our day-to-day Christian lives. Well, in this end-time situation, Christians who comprise the army of Jesus are also his hands and feet, and Jesus is a king. Kings don't normally fight battles by themselves. They assess, command, and encourage their men to fight on their behalf. Jesus is going to articulate a plan to those who implement the plan, those being the people and perhaps angels who comprise the armies of the Lord. God could speak a word and have his enemies all fall down dead, but then why would he need armies? Yes, God could do those things, but that's not how this story is going to play out based on the biblical phrase, Day of Vengeance, Year of Recompense in Isaiah 34, which seems to indicate that it will take up to a year for Jesus to complete his governmental takeover of the world. That passage begins with a divine shout-out to the people of the world. It says, come near you nations to hear and heed you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. This is God calling out to the nations and the people of the world. The word nations is the Hebrew word goi. It means a nation of people and usually non-Hebrew people. In other words, God's calling out to the Gentile nations of the world. The word people is the Hebrew word le'om, which means a people or nation or community. The root of the word means to gather. So God is calling the Gentile nations to gather together so that they can hear a warning and heed it. Verse 2, for the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. After gathering them together, God warns the people that he is indignant and that he opposes their governments and armies. Where do I get the idea that he's angry with their governments? It's implied because armies are led by national rulers. They, the government leaders and rulers, are going to be utterly destroyed and the people in the governments, and especially the ones in the militaries, are going to be killed. God is warning them before Jesus comes back that this is going to take place knowing that the world rulers will not heed his warning. Instead, they will place their faith in man's intellect and its weapons. Unfortunately, no matter what technological advancements people make, it will not be enough to stop the governmental takeover by Jesus. Verse 3. Their slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. A lot of people are going to die in this political takeover and their corpses will be thrown out of the buildings of government and into the streets where they will putrefy and stink because there will not be enough people left to bury them. And much of the responsibility for the lack of manpower will be due to Satan, his followers in Antichrist, and their activities on the earth prior to the arrival of Jesus. That's part of the reason God is angry and indignant. The last part of this verse about mountains being melted with blood does not literally mean that. Blood is not going to melt rocks. The term mountains in the Bible is a metaphor for rulers, governments, and empires. The governments of the world will dissolve because the people who run them are going to die. And when they die, there will be no more people to run the governments. It's a pretty simple idea. Verse 4. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. And here we get back to the divine council of angels who were established to oversee the affairs of the watcher angels, who were to guide and teach the humans on the earth about morality and government. The function of this council will cease once Jesus establishes his rulership on the earth because the angels they oversee are going to be out of jobs. The watcher angels, who are still on the loose on the earth as spirits and are still affecting human policies and actions... They will be removed along with their human governments, probably by the angelic army. So the council overseeing them will also be dissolved. The seat of angelic power in heaven will be shut down, which is likened to rolling up a scroll. What will happen to the angels who make up the council? They will be cast down to the earth with the rest of the fallen angels to be dealt with down here. Verse 5. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom. On the people of my curse for judgment, divine judgment that results in governmental overthrow will take place in heaven and on earth. Once the angels are out of heaven, God will turn his attention to the earth and the judgment that it will absorb. There is a people group who will, by that point in history, have sealed their fate for judgment based on the actions they will be taking leading up to this point. Those people will be located in the land of the ancient Edomites which is basically western Jordan and part of southern Israel. These are Arab people, a people with a long history of hating the Hebrews and working hard to persecute them, which is an inclination that will only intensify during the reign of Antichrist. Verse 6. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat and kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. This is figurative language, equating the slaughter of human beings with that of animals. Animals were slaughtered to atone for sin, and that is the idea with the slaughter of men and women. God is looking at their deaths as sacrifices to atone for their own sins and those of their nations. God specifically calls out a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Basra is a city of ancient Edom, which was their capital city. It is a parallel city to the capital of Jerusalem, where the temple was located, which was the authorized location for sacrifices to God. Edom was a nation that sprang from a lineage that showed contempt toward God, specifically the lineage of Esau, a man who spurned his heritage from God for a bowl of soup. The Edomites were historic enemies of Israel, and today, the Arabs who occupy that land are their spiritual descendants. They hate Israel. And in the days of Antichrist, they are going to take out their vengeance savagely on the Jews. But Jesus is going to come to the remnant Jews of that time in that area who are being held in bondage or prison, and he will begin a hostage rescue mission that will not escape the attention of the Arab governments of that day. Verse 7. The wild oxen shall come down with them, and the young bulls with the mighty bulls. Their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust saturated with fatness. Who is this them that the wild oxen will come with? It is the forces of Antichrist, the rulers who fight for him. In this case, the Edomite descendant ruler and the natives of the land. And the wild oxen shall come down with them. In the Bible, oxen often symbolize warriors, and the adjective wild symbolizes some kind of irregular undisciplined troops. Perhaps Arab terrorists like Hamas or Hezbollah. Bulls symbolize regular military forces. So the young soldiers, the young bulls, come down to Basra with the senior powerful military leaders, the old bulls, to do something. To do what? To engage the forces of Jesus Christ. That engagement will lead to a violent, bloody conflict symbolized by the land being soaked with blood and saturated with fatness. It will not be Jesus' forces whose blood is spilled, but those of the forces who come to fight him. Verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. The year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And here again is that famous phrase. The day of the Lord's vengeance symbolizes the day that Jesus arrives on the earth to establish his rule. And the year of recompense is the year of payback for all the atrocities that the Antichrist governments will have committed by that point in history. Payback will specifically be for the cause of Zion. That is a term that refers to the reestablishment of God's covenant people back on the land. Now, we can argue about which covenant it's talking about and which people get reestablished on the land, but the idea is that it's not those who are there. Verse 9. Its streams shall be turned into pitch, and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. So the land of Edom, the land of West Jordan and southern Israel, is facing a very dire future. There is going to be a storm of fire that will turn it into a searing wasteland. Maybe it will be a kind of fire that erupts from Jesus' eyes. Or maybe it will be a small nuclear weapon. Or maybe it will be some conventional incendiary weapon. But whatever it is, the land is going to be unlivable when Jesus is through with it. Verse 10. It shall not be quenched day or night. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. Whatever's going to happen to western Jordan, Jesus is going to establish it as a permanent memorial to the futility of resisting his rule and God's authority on the earth. Our presidents love to establish national monuments for their political purposes, and Jesus will establish his monuments for his purposes. Men will not enter that monument, but will just look at it from a distance in horror. But something is going to live there. Verse 11. But the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it. Also the owl and the raven shall dwell in it and he shall stretch out over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. That land area will be left to the wild animals as their dwelling, and will be delineated by survey and marker, so that no human being will pass into it. It will remain empty of human life forever as a judgment against it. Verse 12. They shall call its nobles to the kingdom, but none shall be there, and all its princes shall be nothing. Who is this they who calls to the nobles of that land? It is the they of the new kingdom of Jesus Christ, the government officials who summon the leaders of the remnant nations to come and gather together at the capital of the new kingdom. But the rulers and government leaders of that land, formerly known as Edom and West Jordan, will not answer the call because they will all be dead. Isaiah 63 gives us a little more insight into this mysterious Edom situation. Verse 1 reads, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So this is Jesus who speaks in righteousness, mighty to save his people, the Jews, and not willing to save those who oppose him. He is coming from or out of Edom, specifically Basra. So it isn't just the army of Jesus Christ that goes into the land of the enemy in Basra. Jesus does too. Verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? Well, the red garments signify a lot of bloodshed, and the winepress symbology complements that interpretation. Verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments, and I have stained all my robes. When Jesus says he did it alone, he doesn't literally mean all by himself. He's referring to the divine side, which includes his forces. They engaged the enemy alone. The Gentile peoples of the area did not come out to help him or side with him. He is fighting Antichrist and the local people, who at best are indifferent to him. They know who he is because that announcement has been made all over the earth for the previous three years. And we're going to skip those scriptures and kind of move on. Their knowledge of who he is and their hostility or even their indifference towards him makes Jesus' anger grow to the point that he becomes furious with them and they are made to feel the effects of having disrespected the Son of God. Verse 4. For the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. So Jesus is fighting to establish his kingdom on earth and he is doing it systemically or systematically and gradually over the course of a year to redeem the Jews and the entire earth for himself verse 5 i looked but there was no one to help and i wondered that there was no one to uphold therefore my own arm brought salvation for me and my own fury it sustained me again this is a reflection by jesus on the amazing fact that no one in the region wanted his help or in any way would support him There was no one for him to save, so he did what needed to be done by his own power and the power of his armies. Verse 6. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Jesus and his army are going to destroy the Gentile nations, their governments, and their armies in a year of bloody conflict to establish his kingdom, a government that will endure forever and never end. But there is more specifically about the Christians who accompany Christ back to the earth. Another famous biblical verse from Isaiah 40 reads, But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, the normal interpretation of this verse is that God will help you and I when we're down and weak. And that's a nice interpretation, but it's not really what this verse is about. It's about those who wait on the Lord. That is a term that refers to those who are going to return with Jesus when he comes back to the earth the second time. The verse that specifically refers to these people is found in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9-11. to 11. It is a vision of the throne room of God in the days immediately preceding the return of Christ to the earth. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. These are the people who wait on the Lord. They make up the Lord's human army, and they have heard and seen and experienced enough to know that what Jesus comes back to do is justified, right, and necessary. They are indignant, too, from the activities of men on the earth, and they can't wait for Jesus to go back down and dispense justice on those who are malicious and vicious toward the people of God. They will go back with him, but only after they have been given new, perfected bodies. Now, the globalists are busy, busy, busy trying to create their own version of these new bodies based on technological transhumanist technologies. Right now, while this podcast is being heard, Scientists and engineers are working to create superhuman bodies with abilities that we don't remotely possess that will live so long they will essentially be immortal. While China is working to create super soldiers, America is working to create transhuman prototypes that one day will help the globalists achieve the immortality they seek. But God offers us something better than China or the globalists, at least for those who wait on him to dispense his gifts. He is going to give us new bodies that will not get sick, will be able to run without getting tired, walk without growing faint, and maybe even fly. Let's wrap up with one of the most awesome descriptions of the day of the Lord in the Bible because it tells us a lot about what we will be like when we return alongside Jesus. It is the prophecy of Joel 2, and it provides some very interesting insights into our physical life post-glorification. We are just going to cover selected verses, even though the entire chapter is worthy of examination, because we don't have time. Verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. So this chapter takes place in Israel, specifically at the holy mountain in Jerusalem on which the temple was once located. It begins with the blowing of trumpets, which in the Bible have one of three purposes as a call to assemble God's people as a call to war for God's people, or as a warning of impending danger to God's people. Trumpets normally refer to God's people, but in this case, it's a warning to the inhabitants of the land. And who inhabits the land during the day of the Lord? Well, there are some Jews present, but the vast majority of the population will be Gentiles, specifically Arab Gentiles. They are the ones who are going to be trampling all over Israel in these latter days, so they are the object of this warning. Of course, the warning applies to everyone who lives there, including the Jews, which is made clear beginning in verse 12. But first, verse 2 explains why they are being warned. It reads, For it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. These cosmic signs herald the imminent return of Jesus Christ and the judgment of the world that will result. Verse 1 continues, A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. Now, this is not talking about Antichrist and his armies, because at this point in the end times events, Antichrist already occupies the capital of Jerusalem and Israel, and that's where the people are coming to. The Jewish nation of Israel has fallen at this point, and the Antichrist has established his governmental headquarters in Jerusalem just to stick it to God. God describes the people who are coming to the Gentile occupiers of his capital city as a people great and strong. They are Jesus' army that follows him on white horses. That would be the Christians, the like of whom has never been. And that's because this is the first time in history that people will have returned to the earth with perfected bodies. We are not coming as cyborgs from some nightmarish new world order transhumanist laboratory, but fully human, biological, perfected people. Nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. And this is because the first resurrection is a one-time event after which there will be no more resurrections until the second final one. Anyone who dies after the first resurrection will have to wait for the great white throne final judgment to get their perfected bodies, which will take another thousand years or so. And that is many successive generations. So what will be happening when we come back in these bodies? Verse 3. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing can escape them. So this is an army with a mission to burn it to the ground so we can start over. That is the desire of the New World Order globalists, too. Only they want to be the ones who build back better in their own image. They may achieve some form or another of their desire, but when the Christians come back with Jesus, the destruction of the empire will be absolute. There will be fire in front of us and fire behind us, burning the whole black edifice down to the ground. God makes this point by contrasting the Garden of Eden with a desolate wilderness, which in the biblical era meant desert. It's not equating the Antichrist kingdom to the Garden of Eden, but simply making a comparison for the sake of illustrating how complete the destruction will be as Christ's army raises the Antichrist governmental system to the ground. It is reminiscent of Old Testament conquests where the enemy cities were burned to the ground to start over without a remnant of the enemy remaining. Verse 4. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. Now this imagery moves from the destruction that the army is imposing on the Antichrist kingdom to a description of the army itself. This is poetic language describing the appearance and functioning of the army. It's not saying that we look like horses, but it is comparing the suddenness of our appearing to that of horses. In biblical days, horses appeared very quickly because they are fast in comparison with humans who traveled by foot. And that's the idea. We appear suddenly and we come on the enemy like a wave of galloping horses. And it says at the end, and like swift steeds, so they run. So here the description turns to the individual soldiers and not the mass army. It's describing an army of soldiers who have bodies that can run much faster than normal bodies. It's so startling that those who see it are shocked. Verse 5, with a noise like chariots over the mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. The soldiers of Christ's army will be moving very quickly over all kinds of terrain Carrying with them something that makes a lot of noise, which the author likens to the noise made by an ancient army getting ready for battle. I don't know what that sounded like, but I'm sure it was pretty terrifying. Verse 6, before them the people writhe in pain, all faces are drained of color. So something is happening to the enemy of Christ as this army approaches, something that causes them so much pain that they writhe and their faces drain of color. What could cause that? Well, the prophet Zechariah fills in that missing piece of the puzzle beginning in chapter 14, verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Jerusalem being a metaphor for the troops who come to rescue it from the hands of Antichrist. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. And their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths, verse 13. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. So do you see why they will writhe in agony? With their eyes, flesh, and tongues dissolving, they will go blind and seek help from those around them. But fear and panic will consume them to the point that they attack anyone standing around them, which are their own fellow soldiers in the war. Verse 15. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey and on all the cattle that will be in those camps, so shall this plague be. So everything on their side of the battle line will be affected and suffering the same fate. Can you imagine how much noise that would generate? The screams, the explosions, the vehicles bursting into flames, munitions going off, animals disintegrating. Back to Joel 7 in the description of Christ's forces. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation and they do not break ranks. So while the Antichrist soldiers melt, this army of perfected bodies rush on them, easily climbing over walls and other barriers, lines of men moving forward in formation, regardless of whatever weaponry the enemy can manage to unleash against them. I can tell you there's nothing as intimidating as a line of soldiers advancing towards you in a line that does not waver or falter. And why will those soldiers be able to do that? Because they will be in perfected bodies that cannot die or be killed. Verse 8. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. Unlike the enemy, our bodies, those of Christ's soldiers, will hold up no matter what weapons are turned on them. All the super-soldier developers and transhumanist creators who hate Christ will not be able to make anything that can match the perfected bodies of Christ's faithful servants or even come close to the abilities of their perfected bodies. Verse 9. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. So Christ's army soldiers take back the city of Jerusalem from Antichrist forces, and there's nowhere the Antichrist soldiers can run or hide. They can't move like us, they can't run like us, and they can't climb like us. They can't keep up with Christ's soldiers, and they can't get away from us. And that means they can't escape their inevitable death. Verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. So to make matters worse for the Antichrist forces, God creates signs of his power in the natural environment. Darkness covers the land. The earth shakes and the air itself reverberates with powerful shock waves. Verse 11. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? The only ones who can endure it are on Christ's side. The rest are either killed or cower in terror. But remember, this is a warning prophecy. God makes an allowance for his people who are wayward, meaning the Jews of that day. Verse 12. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. You see, God's not vindictive, and he wants his people to repent and turn to him before it's too late. Actually, even Antichrist's forces could turn and repent before God and likely escape this fate if they wanted to, but they won't because they have full faith and confidence in science, technology, and the occult. Through all this, Jesus has a good word for those who are faithful to him. That word is found in Isaiah chapter 61. This scripture describes the aftermath of all this destruction. Jesus is speaking in verses 1 to 3. Verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus will come not just to obliterate the government of Antichrist and Satan, but to comfort all those who mourn, just like he said would happen at his Sermon on the Mount 2,000 years earlier. Those who mourn are those who mourn their sin and their separation from God due to their enmity with God. He is consoling those Jews who were freed in Israel because after 2,000 years they now realize who he really is. And it is written in Zechariah 12:10, Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. The world around the Jews will lie in ruins, but Jesus promises to return it to the beautiful place that it once was. And when all these things and more come to pass, the Jews that remain in that day will be the plantings of the Lord for his glorification. And they will have a lot of work to do on his behalf. Verse 4 of Isaiah 61, and they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. So it gets torn down, but they will rebuild it again. Meanwhile, the remnant of those who persecuted Israel, the Gentiles, will have their own work to do. Verse 5. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. These special people who had visions of world dominion and who actively imprisoned a whole class of people to serve as slaves will be put to work in the fields. They will get to work with their hands for a change. And that's about it. All they get is some change. Then the text suddenly changes the object in the next verse, verse 6. But you, now who is this? The Jews? No, it's the Christians, Christ's army. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. To the victors go the spoils, they say, but more importantly, this verse tells us what our job will be after the victory is secured for Jesus. We will become priests to the Lord, to Yahweh, and to Jesus. Priests are intermediaries who facilitate a relationship between a deity and men. There are no priests in Christ's kingdom today because he calls Christians his brothers and sisters. We are in the family, and that is the big reward that Paul speaks about repeatedly, warning us not to lose it. It's not salvation that's the big reward, although salvation is certainly a huge reward. The big reward is being a member of Christ's family, the ruling family, the royal family, because the family members have the closest relationship with the leader of the family, and they get the choicest positions in Christ's government that will have no end. There will be others who will be saved, but not everyone will be invited into the family. The others will be invited into the kingdom as subjects. Now, certainly, it's better to be a subject in Christ's kingdom than a king in hell, but you can certainly see why Paul said, don't lose your big reward of being invited into the family. This is why the church age is such a big deal to God. It is the period during which he's building up his family. Verse 7, Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor, and instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land they shall possess double, everlasting joy shall be theirs. The shame comes in the way Christians had been treated by non-Christians, especially during the end-time events. The double honor comes from the great reward of being in the family. And wherever we are stationed in the world, we shall possess twice as much as everyone else, signifying our elevated rank and privilege. I think we are likely to be stationed in that area where we grew up. That's why God wants representatives of every language, people, and nation in his kingdom as family members. That's how kings control territories. And that is the big picture of what we will be doing immediately after getting our perfected bodies when we return to the earth with Jesus in the end times. The Bible is a little bit vague on the details of what we will be doing in the millennial kingdom and even more vague about what we will do in the eternal state. But the secret things of God belong to him and he will reveal them at the right time to make our joy complete. So next episode, we will return to an examination and revelation of the darkness of this age and what we should do about it. But always remember what's coming, what we have been promised based not on my opinion, but on the perfect and inerrant word of God. I hope this biblical peek into the future has been an encouragement to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and punch that sign, symbol, or button to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeartPlayer, FM Listen Notes, Pandora's, Amazon Podcasts, and Podchaser. Oh, and undergroundchristian.net. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to at Outlook.com. O Lord of heaven and earth, the things you have planned for us are too numerous and wonderful to list even partly, but it is enough to just be with you and your son Jesus as he establishes his rulership over the entire earth. It's true that you condemn and destroy the evil and perverted things of angels and man, but it's also true that you heal and restore them again to your vision of what they should be. How else could you take these perverse things and fix them? That destruction will include the parts of us that sin and rebel against you if we repent and turn back to you. But in return, you will perfect us and bless us in ways unimaginable to our creative minds. Everything exists for a purpose. The creation is so grand and wonderful that we can't possibly imagine all the purposes you have for all the things in it. So we simply rest in your promises, knowing you are faithful, kind, and compassionate to us small, sinful balls of dust. I thank you for being my God, and I extend that heartfelt thanks on behalf of all the people listening to you today, if indeed they are in Christ. Protect us this week, and bring us safely through the trials and into your kingdom. In all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.